was it bad? What was it like? Working with him, working with her. You'll hear all the tales you wish you knew. Every aspect of the theater too. Feel your love of Broadway anew. On backstage babble. Hi. This is Charles Kirsch, and welcome to Backstage Babble. I hope you enjoyed our fabulous new theme song, written and played by the wonderful Tom Judson. Anyway, today I am honored to be joined by our guest, Charles Bush. Charles Bush is a drag legend and playwright. He is the author of The Tale of the Allergist Wife, Times Square Angel, Vampire Lesbians of Sodom, Red Scare on Sunset, and most recently, The Confession of Lily Dare. He is also the author of the book To Boy George's Taboo, as well as the writer of the novel Whores of Lost Atlantis. He is a Tony Award nominee and two-time Mac Award winner for his cabarets that he performs around the country with Tom Judson. I hope you enjoy our conversation. So let's start at the beginning. You grew up with your own kind of auntie name, Aunt Lil. So how did she help? sort of expose you culturally to the things that would later shape your work? Well, you know, my aunt was a really extraordinary person. And she, um, <clears throat> excuse me, my aunt really was an extraordinary person. And I think that whatever my interests were, she would have embraced. So, I mean, if I had been some kind of, you know, sports, you know, athletic kid, you know, she would have, you know, sent me to baseball camp or whatever, you know, but I, I think she was fortunate that, that my interests coincided with hers. And so, so, uh, you know, she loved the theater and, and, um, it was all artistic pursuits. So, yeah. So she started to uh, take me to the theater when I guess I was, uh, it was 1963. So I was about eight going into nine and, uh, she, uh, just took me to, didn't matter how adult, the play was, you know, she took me to see this, this very um, sort of sexually charged um, British drama by jo uh, John Osborne called Inadmissible Evidence. And I didn't really didn't understand a word of it at nine years old, but she never, um, she never explained anything to me. She, I think she just sort of figured out I'd either tune in or tune out. And, uh, but we, you know, we saw so many wonderful shows and, and I, I think she was just really enraptured with the idea of um, of having this um, child who was so open to to the world and had such passionate interests at at such a very young age. And we, you know, we really had fun together. She was um, she was as fat. We were kind of mutually fascinated with each other. So it was not. It was. Um, not exactly like Auntie Mame, where, where that's a bit more, more one-sided, but the little boy just fascinated by this outrageous lady. But I think in this case, um, Auntie Mame was more fascinated by young Patrick. So what were some of the old movies and old movie stars that you got interested then that would help with what you did later? Well, I mean, I, I, we had, there were a lot, uh, when I was growing up in, in New York, we had a lot of... Um, a lot of uh, classic films were shown on television. You know, there, first of all, I don't think there was that, there wasn't as much programming 
back back then. So um, so I think the uh, few TV channels there were filled up their uh, schedules with um, with old movies, and every day there was the 4:30 movie, you know. Uh, and it was a nine from 436. So sometimes it was a really long movie like Marie Antoinette with Norma Shearer. They would cut it in two parts, but time to get all the commercials in it. Um, and then there, you know, there, there was million dollar movie, which was on uh, channel nine. It was not one of the main, you know, two, four or seven channels. And so they really didn't have enough programming. So they would show one movie 22 times a week. And they would show the same movie every night, uh, Monday through Friday at eight o'clock, and then on, on weekends, on a loop the whole day. So there were certain movies that my sister and I were just so obsessed with, like uh, Yankee Doodle Dandy with James Cagney, and we would just watch it all weekend. But you know, the thing was, um, as much as, as, as the movies have been, inter- has been an influence on me, I would, I would really definitely say that my bigger interest, greater interest, as a kid was theater history. And that's where I, where I kind of identify with you, Charles. Uh, when I, uh, I'm not quite sure I got into it, except that perhaps if I have to try to find some beginning, well, first of all, you know, of course, Anne Boleyn was taking me to, to Broadway shows, you know, and, 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 and let's say, for instance, I think the very first musical I saw was Tavarich with, with Vivian Lee. And I had already at nine years old, I had already seen Gone Out the Wind, so uh, in a 1961 uh, reissue. So I was very aware of, of Vivian Lee, and and you know perhaps that kind of led me into her history as opposed to just her film history. I, I don't know, but the big thing was that my aunt found in a um, thrift shop this big coffee table book called um, uh, Great Stars of the American Theater, and I still have it. And it, it was it was old and battered when I got it in the early 60s, it, uh, the, uh, it went from Lillian Russell to the most contemporary new star was Maureen Stapleton. And, uh, and I was just fascinated by the book. It was each page, it was a big coffee table book, and each page had a, 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 a full portrait of, photographic portrait of the star, and then uh, you know a couple paragraphs about their life, and then small pictures of their different stage appearances. And that just, oh gosh, um, really uh, kept me in a state of, of intense uh, study, each one. And, and, I, and the faces of these, particularly the women stars, uh, Lynn Fontaine and Catherine Cornell, Yves Le Gallien, um, I think, I think it actually got, they, they captured my imagination more more even than than the stars that I would see on the um, afternoon movie, like Betty Davis and Norma Shearer, who I who I, I loved, but it was I think I think the stage actresses who I could not actually see, you know, they didn't make movies or make or or relatively few, and I think that the absence of that made them more intriguing to me. That they became almost more like like characters in a fairy tale that you would imagine what you know, Sleeping Beauty looked like or something. I, you know, the, I could I could imagine try to imagine what Catherine Cornell sounded like and what and just from seeing the the little photographs of her in the in the Barrett's Wimpole Street, um, I 
I could try to just lie back and imagine those stories and and uh, what it would be like. That so for me that was um, even um, more interesting. And I guess these the actress who really captured my imagination was Sarah Bernhardt, who was from many generations before even that pantheon of actresses like Lynn Fontaine. Sarah Bernhardt was born in 1844 and, and uh, died in full harness on stage in 1923. But I was fascinated by her. And I think um, Anne Boleyn got me a copy of um, a bi wonderful biography of Bernhardt by Cornelia Otis, Cornelia Otis Skinner, which I think came out in 67. So I was a little bit older there. So I was probably 13, I guess, in 67. And, and the life of Sarah Bernhardt absolutely changed my perspective. And I, I clearly, I can absolutely say that my entire career, aesthetic, and the choices I've made have been influenced by the life of Sarah Bernhardt because here was someone who, um, you know, was a rather solitary child, and um, she uh, uh, saw value in herself that other people didn't, you know, and she um, just with you know great strength of character, just um, despite everything, kept going forward, and and until she hadn't had a long apprenticeship until she found success really on her own terms. And, and you know, she uh, later had her own company and she um, created a whole new aesthetic of beauty. She, at a time when, when actresses and just women in general were the idea of the very full, Juno-esque uh, kind of uh, full-bodied woman, was the norm here she was this rather tubercular thin semitic looking exotic creature and she rather like barbara streisand did in in the early 60s she kind of rather forced the public to perceive her as as a, a new a new uh, form of beauty and then she was a playwright and as a, a visual artist. She was a sculptor and a painter. She, and then, of course, there was this androgynous part of her, which I found fascinating that she, uh, although she played courtesans and glamorous courtesans and, and empresses, but she also played o over a dozen male roles, including Hamlet. But usually people say, oh, she played Hamlet, but she played many other male roles in her 60-year uh, career as well. So, so all of that, just, you know, I absorbed it and, and kind of kept it in the front of my mind, in the back of my mind. And I, and I really see that, that, that it's, if, if one person can be the driving force of someone's life, uh, she would be to mine. So at what point during this early study of theater did you realize that you wanted to write and act? And then at what point did you realize you wanted to act in drag? Well, uh, hmm. and, uh, interesting question, because I, I was about to say that they came at separate times, but maybe in a certain way, they were always there together. I, um, I was always writing, and when I was uh, bad in school, 
I, I've never, and, and really it's to this day, if it's something that's really in my interest, I have great powers of, of focus and concentration. But if it's not in my specific interest, I, I just can't really, I'm just not uh, very focused or uh, you know, my mind wanders or I fall asleep. And so I was that way in school. You know, I just couldn't math and all this. You know, certain, I, I like history only if it related to the movies that I'd seen, you know, like Marie Antoinette or, or Elizabeth I, you know, things that I could associate movie stars with. Uh, so, but I was always writing and, and, and uh, interesting that my teachers found me so unexceptional because I was writing full-length plays at, at 10 years old. You know, and my, and my play early, early writing was, you know, well, much like my later writing, <laughs> was very influenced by, by the movies I was watching on television. I think my very first play, which full-length play, and I guess I was about 11 maybe, um, really was a, a complete mashup of the Barrett's of Wimpole Street and, and the heiress put together. Nobody seemed to, <laughs> to notice. But uh, I think people were just intrigued that this kid had written a full-length play. So I, you know, so I was I was always writing, and and, um, and I and I used to fantasize a lot about actually uh, roles for myself. I, I I don't know if I actually ever really finished a play or when I was a kid for with a role for myself, but I I, I used to write a lot of notes for and sort because of, whatever fantasies I had, I would write them down, which I, I think um, shows a someone who really is at heart a writer a daydream it was enough to daydream I, I would i wrote them all down in rather elaborate forms um yeah so i i did have ideas for musicals and and plays that that would star me uh, yeah from from an early age because I, I just always wanted to be on stage i can't remember a time not wanting to to, to be there and um but, and, and my aunt uh, certainly encouraged it. Uh, she started sending me to acting classes at a very young age, even before I actually went to live with her. Because I, I, I didn't actually move into Manhattan to live with my aunt until uh, ninth grade, which I guess I would have been 14. But uh, I spent all my life, almost every weekend, in Manhattan. We, we, my house I lived in was in Westchester, in the suburbs, but I would come in almost every weekend uh, either to go to the theater or, or, or acting class at the neighborhood playhouse on East 54th Street. And, uh, yeah, so, uh, so I was always interested in acting and, and then the drag that, that comes much, much later. But, and I, I'm trying to imagine, did I as a kid think of roles of, for myself that were, I, no, no, that, I, that would not be true. Uh, no, the, the, the roles I fantasized for myself were variations of, of Oliver, you know, kind of waif-like waif kid. That's, that's what I, how I saw myself and, and yeah, I, I, I didn't, uh, and I wasn't one of those kids who, who dressed up in, you know, my mother's clothes or something. Yeah. You know, no, I, that, was, that wasn't me. There's just theater, 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 and 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 then the movies, and 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 of course with the movies, you know, um, I started assimilating, much like like you do, uh, just all this trivia information, and 
by the time I was 12, you know, I could give you the names of every, who won best actress in every, the Oscars, you know, from 1927 to 1968, yeah. So I, I could, I started just absorbing information like we do when we have a great interest. It's our, our, our passion. And I certainly wasn't absorbing any information about American history or anything. It was all just, just but, but I learned history through the movies. That's the thing. And whatever history I did learn uh, was just from historical movies or, or um, reading about um, the historical figures of the theater whose lives touched the times they lived in. So when you were at college, some of your earliest plays were called outtakes of a B-movie and sister act. So mm -hmm. how do you think writing these early plays influenced your style or helped build your style later? Um, the first real play um, that I wrote, I guess, was uh, I was in college and it was a um, very naturalistic play, I think. You know, I was influenced by, uh, or, or let's say it was po poetic realism, I guess you would call it. But, uh, you know, I, I, fairly early, early I, I was uh, reading and, and seeing plays and movies of uh, Tennessee Williams. And so, like, you know, most young writers, Williams was the, um, the torch that was, was lit. So yeah, so outtakes of the movie well, it was interesting. Just the fact that that it was, it was the first real serious play that I tried to write, and I learned so much, and I worked on it quite a while, and tore it apart, and put it back together again, and edited, and and I, I that I guess is is important for me in that it 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 taught me the importance of rewriting and the joy of rewriting and editing. I, I I love it. it writing um, a first draft when there's nothing there is is torture and, and requires enormous discipline. But once there's something on paper, I find it just it's, it's maybe my my greatest pleasure to just keep going back into the document and and it's seeing I, I can tell that I don't need three pages. I can cut that down to to one page and, and uh, oh that, that that's cut the whole first scene, it doesn't, I don't need it. And, you know, all of that, I, I, I love it. I, I, I find it's not a, not, doesn't require discipline at, at all. Um, but, and then, um, but then the, the, the big influence from, for me was uh, Charles Ludlam. And he was a really titanic figure in theater, as far as I was concerned. And I, I read about him in a copy of, of, of uh, one of my aunt's Vogue magazines I was lying about, they, they would have articles, I guess, I haven't looked at Vogue in so many years, but you know, there was, they would write people, there was a column people are talking about, and they would mention various cultural figures who, who were doing interesting things. And I was just flipping through the Vogue magazine and there was this photo of this man with hypnotic dark eyes and this wild wig on and and was, he was doing a play it was an early play of his interesting that he was already written up in vogue because he was really quite early in his career like called the grand tarot and and um oh i it just said it's so decadent and 
dark and sort of grotesque and beautiful, just reading about it and seeing the photograph. His play was long gone, so I couldn't see it. But I, it got Charles, the name Charles Ludlam percolated in my mind. And then eventually, um, uh, I, you know, I don't know how old I was, I 16, 17. I think I, I don't think, I think it was before I went to college, I believe. Um, I saw that he, he was d doing a play called Eunuchs of the Forbidden City down here in, in, um, in the village uh, at, at Westbeth. It was before he had his own theater. And so I took my sister to go see it. Finally, I was going to see Charles Ludlam. And well, it just, I, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. You know, I had been raised in all these Broadway musicals and comedies and straight plays, which were of a rather conservative nature at, at the time. And, and so to see this off-off-Broadway production that had nothing to do with um, the kind of theater that I'd been brought up seeing, and yet harken back to Sarah Ber images of Sarah Bernhard and the, the 19th century theater, and the, the outrageousness, the decadence, that was a bigger, bigger than life and, and theatrical, theatrical, and and it was on a shoestring. The, the, the eunuchs of the Forbidden City was a comic burlesque on um, the on Chinese history. It was about ostensibly about the last empress of, of China. And it was done on a shoestring. It was all, the whole set were just kind of drapes and things that kept, you know, different formations of the of, uh, drapes that he would move, move around. And, and oh, it's just, uh, and it was a you know, body comedy, but it was a high, high culture and low culture. I mean, references to Oscar Wilde and, and, um, Sardou, but but also just you know real body body dirty stuff. I I, I couldn't believe it. And, and the um, the element of drag that I'd never seen before, where you know he had um, uh, men playing some of the female parts, and and that were it was just because these beautiful young men were marvelous in the roles. You know that they it, it wasn't a comment on drag. It was just they were just doing it. You know. Uh, so all, all of that just hit hit me. I, I describe it sometimes as being hit by a tidal wave or a tsunami. I just couldn't believe the well, the possibilities of what the theater could be. It could be anything. It could be whatever my wherever my imagination takes me. It didn't have to be uh, just the, what would be on on Broadway, permissible on Broadway. All of that. So that. Totally changed, and here and love them. It was I, I guess I had never really been exposed to an actor playwright that he was creating roles and a, and a theatrical world for himself. So that that absolutely changed changed everything for me. So, so now at this point, then I went to college, and you know as a theater major at Northwestern, I, I just I don't know I saw that. You know, at Northwestern, I, I just didn't fit. I wasn't cast in plays, and I just um, didn't really want to be. There really wasn't too much I wanted to do it be in anyway, and that I thought I really was right for. And uh, I, I think I was so enraptured with Ludlum that already I was just thinking there must be some way to to put myself on the stage and on my own terms. And what's the qualities that seem to make me unsuitable for 
the young male roles maybe are what, what's unique about me. Maybe like Sarah Bernhardt, I can be in charge of my own destiny. All those thoughts were coming to me at this very young age at, at Northwestern. I then um, wrote a, a and, oh, and the uh, English department had a, had a contest, a writing contest, and I was not in the English department, I was a theater major, but I, I, I sort of scrambled around to see if I could get a double major in English, and I, which I wasn't quite successful at the time, but I submitted outtakes of the B-movie to um, this contest, and I won. I won the $500, and then they, they realized that I wasn't an English major, so they rescinded the award. But it was certainly encouraging, uh, you know. And I, I wrote a play senior year. And it was a, a long one act, and uh, it was, I guess, influenced by Love Lemon, also a bit of t late Tennessee Williams, uh, and it was about a, a traveling freak show. And I, I wrote the two main characters, who were um, a pair of squabbling Siamese twin conjoined sisters named Hester and Esther, and I wrote the parts for, for my roommate, who's my best friend, Ed, and I to, to play in drag, Ella Ludlam. And I see now that it, it, there are a number of uh, themes in there that, that uh, I was beginning to experiment with, that um, tw twins, which have played a big part in my, um, my work. I've, I don't even realize I'm doing it, but, um, so often my plays either specifically have tw twins or twin sisters, or it's more um, uh, more thematic that a twinship that two people can have the, the, the symbiotic relationship, something that's a relationship that's so so intense that they might as well be twins. So I've oh die mommy die um, um gosh I, I wrote a whole this psycho beach party. I have a whole list of them that that uh, keeps that I don't re realize I'm doing it until sometimes after the after the whole play closes I, I think oh my gosh I did it again and we're not always so aware I think playwrights writers aren't always aware of what we're doing it's a, 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 a creative writing is is almost like a dream that we have and it it almost takes someone else to interpret it for us we we just pour it out and shape it, but we're not, I don't, I, I really could only speak for myself, but I, I imagine that for many writers it's like that. I mean, I, I guess there are, there are writers who, who begin with a theme yeah, and that they uh, then develop and how do I best express that theme? That I, I've never been that way. I, I, um, I just, I have a story in my mind, uh, characters in my mind, uh, a role that I'd like to play. All, all of these things, a movie genre that intrigues me that I'd like to pay homage to. And then, then later I, I see, oh, how autobiographical it is, didn't realize. Yeah. Sometimes so clear, so clear I feel foolish that how naked it is, it's clearly elements of my life in the, I've symbolically, like a dream, uh, turned into a play and I, and I never knew. So I think the first play that maybe made you famous was Vampire Lesbians of Sodom. So what was it that made you decide to start writing that and how did you sort of get it produced off Broadway? 
well, I'd had a whole long uh, apprenticeship. Uh, I started out as a solo performer because, uh, well, I, I had a little theater company in Chicago. After, after I graduated, I stuck around Chicago for two years. Well, I wasn't ready to come back to New York and just begin my career. I wasn't quite sure what that career exactly was. Um, so I had a little theater company where um, uh, the idea was that I would be like Charles Ludlam, though. I, I would write parody, pastiche plays, and, and in my case, see Ludlam only, you know, people always think of him as this great drag star when out of 36 plays, I think he only cre created uh, maybe four roles in drag, but people just like to simplify everyone. Uh, anyway, so I had this, I started doing that and it ended prematurely after just a few months. It was the wrong group of people. We really didn't share a common dream. So then I, I came back to New York and I didn't want to, um, I, I, you know, I, I didn't have, I knew no one. I didn't know how do you get a play produced? So I became a solo performer. I did model, dramatic monologues and, and these I could do at, um, in cabarets like the duplex and uh, places like that. So that's, uh, so I, and I, I just focused on that for about uh, eight years and booked myself around the country at small nonprofit theaters. Uh, doing these monologues and I, I wasn't really sure what the dream ultimate goal was but I was certainly learning so much about performing and developing a relationship with an audience and, and uh, learning playwriting through through these one-act solo pieces uh, and I pursued that but I, I had no management at all never had an agent or Anyone, it was all just me. And, and then, you know, I'd have a direct, I'd always had someone direct me, but, but you know, they, uh, I was always kind of the person who was finding the bookings and sending out the press kits and everything. And finally in 1984, I just, it, it was not, I was not progressing at all. And in fact, it seemed like, although I'd learned so much and I grew, kept growing, uh, I, there was no, um, didn't seem like my career was progressing. And then that, just as a lark, um, um, I, 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 I was friends with a very fascinating um, uh, performance artist, uh, Bina Sharif, who's had a wonderful career uh, as a downtown playwright and, and actor. And she um, invited me to, to see her do her performance piece um, way down in Alphabet City on Avenue C in this um, performance space bar art gallery called the Limbo Lounge. And I'd never, even though I grew up in New York, I'd never been to Alphabet City and it was a very scary area in those days. It was totally undeveloped. And, uh, it was kind of dangerous, in fact. But there were little pockets of interesting art galleries and dance clubs. And so um, anyway, um, I took my roommate, Ken Elliott, who had been directing my act and I, I had gone to Northwestern with Ken and he was an aspiring director and uh, we saw Bina's show and, and we were, I, I was just so completely dazzled by her, by the East Village crowd, you know, and the whole decadent ambiance of Limbo Lounge. It seemed like, like something out of cabaret. It, uh, it, was, it was very Berlin in the 20s. And, and I, I love, I've always, 
I just have always loved the idea of putting on plays in odd places. I, I never was a snob about it. I never even, I mean, I, I never, my fantasies, I never even had Broadway fantasies particularly. I, I loved, I just always thought it was really fun and an adventure to put on a play where, where people had done plays before, where they were, you know, in Chicago, you know, I was doing, doing my plays with my old, my first theater company in, in movie theaters after the late, the last screening. Uh, all that, I, I never thought that it was tacky. I thought it was fun. And, and, and kind of fabulous. So the idea of, I, immediately I wanted to put on a play in this, at this uh, bar, art gallery, there was no stage at all. People sat on the floor. And um, so I, you know, Michael Limbo, the young man who, who, um, who owned the Limbo Lounge with his partners, Victor and Jeanette Anonymous, <laughs> it was very, you know, freewheeling. And he just, you know, I was unknown and, yeah, he just—he was a young young guy, and he just looked on the calendar and said, "I can give you the weekend uh, weekend in, J in June." Or I didn't know it was April. I think it was April. Um, so I said, "Yeah, sure." And I said, "Ken, we're going to do a play." And he said, well, "What are we going to do?" I said, "Well, I'll, I'll come up with something. You know, we'll do something." And I—I I, uh, I think I'd, I'd read Interview with the Vampire, which I loved, and and I—I I, I, my interest in vampires was was more the, the blood part didn't interest me but i like that the age the ageless people could span time and never got older and and so uh, the idea you know it was it was an easy connection for me to make with the idea of of, of actresses who never age somehow and and span the centuries so that, that was the and, and the central source of humor was that although they were vampires who lived a thousand years, they were actresses first. That's, that's where the, kind of the source of humor was, their, their rivalry over their careers. So it was kind of a Betty Davis, Joan Crawford feud, um, but starting in ancient Sodom and carrying them through into the 20s. And I had to, you know, the other thing was, you know, I, I'm very much a playmaker. You know, I, I, uh, I'm like a cobbler, you know, who creates a, something that's useful and also aesthetic at the same time. And I knew that if we were going to put up, we literally had not one, we did not want to spend, we had no money and we weren't going to raise money to put on a plate in its bar. You know, so it had to be done for nothing. Nothing. Zero. And no, there's no stage, so it's set, so no lighting, you know. The only thing was what you know. What would we wear? And I, you know, and that was easy enough to just cobble together. You know, just a rehearsal satin rehearsal skirt, or a boosty a tank sequin tank top, and tube top, and just different things. I had a couple old ratty wigs from when I lived in Chicago, and yeah, so, so I, I, I wrote the piece very quickly, very, very quickly. I was working as an office temp. And so between, you know, picking up cell phone as a receptionist, I, I, we just needed the lines to say, basically. So it wasn't like I was writing a play. It just, I wanted, I wanted to do something in this bar. And so, and it didn't have to be very, only had to be 40 minutes, maybe. And uh, so the vampires, then I had to choose historical periods that I could costume. So that, that left out, you know, the, the 15th, 16th, and 17th, and 18th centuries. 
but I thought ancient ancient world, you know, togas and things, and you know, you're kind of basically naked. And then I thought uh, the twenties, I could create that that silhouette pretty easily, just with you know, found pieces. So that that's really what um, how that play came about. And then and then who was I gonna you know um, who would do this crazy thing with me? Because that's what you know it was. It was a bit of a leap, you know, asking people to be in this long sketch in this bar, you know, in a scary neighborhood. Not it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the easiest phone call to make. But I, you know, I I called it first person I called was Andy Halliday, who was a very close friend of mine who I'd met at theater camp when we were kids and we'd stayed close. And so immediately I thought, well, Andy should be in it. And he he said fine and uh and then um oh there's just people like you know ken was dating a young a very beautiful young man named bobby carey who wasn't a, had no desire to be an actor but he was very handsome we thought oh put him in you know play and young there was a young man arnie Claudner, who i admit when i was working as a because i i draw and instead of being for many for about 10 years um instead of being a waiter or something some way to try to earn a living while I was struggling, I was a quick sketch portrait artist at, at different art fairs. I'd, at the New York Renaissance Fair, I'd met Arnie Claudner, who was a young, just out of NYU, and he was a street, street magician. So, we, so I thought, oh, I'll put Arnie in the play. And, and Teresa Aceves was the young woman who, uh, a young actress I met when I performed in my, doing my solo act in Washington, D.C. So just I, I just we just assembled this group of people who would do this, uh, and then uh, to, to play my my rival actress vampire, uh, well Bina was supposed to do. I wrote for Bina Sharif, you know, because she she was sort of the name, and then uh, suddenly she, her mother in Pakistan was ill, so she had to fly back and. Um, as a, a real coup was that I had stayed friendly with um, a wonderful, real cult downtown actress, Lola Pashalinsky, who had been a member of Charles Ludlam's company. And she had always been very kind to me. And so she, she that was a real kind of coup. You know, she'd won the Obie Awards. And so uh, she um, played the succubus opposite me. And, and we, we just, you know, so we, we did the two nights and, and we just had a ball, you know, and, and I had never, when I was as a solo performer, since I knew nobody, I never had more than six people come be in the audience when I perform at the duplex. But here we each invited our friends. So uh, we filled up the place. That was a secret to getting the audience, have, have other people bring in, their, bring in their friends too. And we just had uh, so much fun and, and we wanted to do a second weekend and there was one available but uh, just maybe a month later, but uh, Lola, she had enough, and she, she, you know, she didn't want to continue. I, I couldn't blame her. You know, she just, she was older than we were, and she wanted to. Uh, she was a place her life, or she, she liked being paid and performing in a theater that, in a situation that was commensurate with her, uh, her abilities and her reputation. So I, I was just uh, desperate. I wanted to do it so badly, and I could find no one who would do it. You know, it did not sound appealing. And the last person on my list was um, 
was this blonde girl that I met uh, named Julie Halston, who was working on Wall Street and had vague notions of being a performance artist. And I, she was the last one I could think of, basically. So I called her up and she said, rather too quickly, she said yes. And well, okay. And uh, yeah, so, so she, but we just hit it. I hardly knew her really at that point, but we just totally hit it off. And we began this uh, passionate friendship that has lasted to this, to this day and a dozen plays and movies and all of that. I guess she could see, we could be pretentious and call her my muse. I mean, she just, you know, I, I've always found her an endless source of entertainment and wisdom and uh, never never tired of exploring all the facets of her personality to to focus on in different different projects uh so that so that when we got julie we did feel like we were complete so you sort of formed a company called theater and limbo and mm -hmm. were there other actors in that company too or were there just well, well, well yes i mean the, the, all the people that i had um found throughout my life that I put in into the show yeah and um and and, and it, it, it was supposed to be just for those that weekend that weekend but we we just all enjoyed each other's company so much right away we just felt it, we were having so much fun and I you know I was sort of a solitary kid growing up and it was wonderful being part of a group it was almost the first time I really felt really, really part of a group. We all just adored each other in those days. And 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 we, uh, and Michael Limbo got a real kick out of us. And we had such a, well, Ken Elliott, who, you know, was my roommate and he, he directed the Vampire Lesbians and really produced it. I mean, he was one who was doing all the heavy, whatever, Heavy lifting. There was there wasn't too much heavy lifting, but but he, he did it all and was acting in the part as a play as well. But, uh, but you know Ken was very professional, you know, and he had been a stage man. He was the goal was to be a director, but but he had worked as a stage manager at top regional theaters, and um, so I mean he was a real pro. And having Ken just figuring things out organizing everything was very impressive you know and and so we we, um, we started doing other plays at Limbo Lounge uh, I wrote a play called Theodora she bitch of Byzantium that was inspired by a Sarah Bernhardt play and see this and, and before we know we didn't realize that we, we we weren't trying to organize a group we were just doing the, the one weekend but we just all adored each other and and let's do another one another another one and then uh, another one and michael limbo said well why don't you you should be our resident theater company and so we called ourselves theater in limbo theater in the limbo lounge at this point ken 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 was going to um give up theater and and go to he'd been accepted to law school but he suddenly just not suddenly but he saw that that this he had his own company. So we did a whole season of, of plays. Oh, my. Yeah, so so Ken thought if we're gonna do it, let's really do it right. And he started involving um, other other theater friends of his. Uh, 
a very talented uh, lighting designer, Vivian Leone, who has had a wonderful career. She's, she um, assists, uh, like she's the first assistant for, oh, I, like Phantom of the Opera. A very talented designer on her own. And so she, we got a whole lighting plot set up at Limbo Lounge that Vivian designed. And, and we got Brian Whitehill, who, who worked at, um, uh, was a graphic designer at Channel 13 and created the logo for great performances and a lot of their things. And, you know, we still didn't really have, couldn't afford to have sets, but he would paint, do a painted backdrop. And, and maybe even more importantly, he designed a logo for us and all of our, all of our posters. In those days, he had put, we had flyers that we would send out because there was no internet. Um, and he, Brian, very wisely uh, thought if, you know, that since it's really the only publicity we had were to do the mailings, that each each the flyer should have a uniform look to it and a logo, so that and and we you know, we would take these rather you know outrageous photos for each show, so people could you know if they chose to they could people who were on our mailing list could collect these flyers and put them on their refrigerators. And, and I think that they, they each one was so cool looking that people kind of liked having the series of these. So that, that was an instrumental uh, in helping us get a following. And, and um, yeah, so we, we just, uh, and, I, and, and it was an interesting thing. It wasn't really my, my plan, but, but our company, which was assembled, you know, just from friends that I, that, who I thought would do something as nutty as this, but, uh, but it, they fit the all the the roles of the traditional 19th century stock company. I was the leading lady, and Teresa was the ingenue, and Julie was the soubrette, and um, Ken was the villain, and Arnie was the leading man, and Andy was the, the character actress. You know, so it, it also it was kind of perfect, and and I just loved having this this stock company that I could write plays for, and and it was a little bit like having. My old, my own old time movie studio with contract players that that I would develop, and, and each and I was so fortunate that each of the people, each of these friends that I um, hoodwinked into doing these plays, had a huge personality. They were all so unique. Nobody was bland. Each they all had kind of a persona, and it was it was fun for me to as a playwright to create roles for each of them that allowed them to do what we call their trip, what made them unique, but at the same time expand on it and show somewhat different facets of their, of their um, talents. Uh, I just loved it, loved it so much. And yes, yeah, so that, that was the end. And we developed this following very quickly, very quickly. Uh, we, we were ne never really reviewed except for by the gay paper, the New York native. Uh, and who is writer there, Michael Summers, was very into us. And so he was very helpful because he would review each of these plays that we would do every three weeks and, and treat us like we were, you know, important. So when you were writing these satires, how did you come up with a style to parody? Well, well often it was, it often came just from, from or a fantasy of what role I would like to play and, oh, wouldn't it be fun to be blah, 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 like, um, 
or, or, or for other people too, for, for Julie, I knew one of the things that Julie and I shared was uh, we were, grew up um, being fascinated by uh, mod London in the 60s and the Beatles and the fashions and everything of, of the London in the 60s, which we would you know, read about when we were uh, teenagers. So I wanted to give Julie a chance to live out her fantasy of being a, a, a sexy young London dolly bird, you know, a Julie Christie or, you know, Jean Shrimpton. So I wrote this uh, a one act piece for us called um, Sleeping Beauty or Coma, which was the Sleeping Beauty fairy tale set in Mod London. And so that, that was kind of a, a gift for, for Julie to, to live out that fantasy. Then, um, uh, so she played a young, young girl who becomes a great fashion model, and I um, played her, her the uh, sort of Mary Quant um, fashion designer who um, is her, her mentor. Uh, yeah, but then a lot of times it was just you know a fantasy of who I'd like to be. Like Theodora was, I wanted to have a chance to be Sarah Bernhardt and and play um, the Empress Theodora of Byzantium in the style of Sarah Bernhardt, who had done that role. A version of that play in the 19th century or uh, or if it's a movie or Times Square Angel we came about uh, we, you know we, we, had, we were doing this series of plays at Limbo Lounge and the last one was going to be in December so we thought we should do a Christmas show and Ken and I both uh, you know, love you know, sentimental Christmas movies and you know, we, we didn't want to, we, we didn't want to make fun of them. We wanted to really have a, a piece that uh, was truly sentimental and, and, and outrageous as comedy, but ultimately rather touching. Uh, I, I was having trouble coming up with a, a plot. Uh, and so I, one night after, we were, we were uh, I, I had Andy Halliday, Andy Halliday and I went for dinner to an Italian restaurant, and I said, Andy, we are not leaving this table until we have a story. And so we, we stayed there a long time, and we were, you know, thinking different, you know, Christmas stories or, or old movies that touch on the Christmas Carol, of course, or it's, it's a Wonderful Life. And, and then, although it's not a Christmas story, there was a, um, a Lucille Ball, Henry Fonda movie called The Big Street that was set in Damon Runyon territory. Uh, so we threw them all together and came up with the story. And then again, you know, who did we want to play? And I thought, well, I, I wanted to play a real tough nightclub performer who's uh, learns a big lesson on Christmas Eve. And so I turned into the character Irish O'Flanagan. And then Andy, and that's uh, in the, when we first did it. The, oh, he'll play the Henry Fonda part. He'll be the the bus boy. Who at the nightclub? Who's in love with her? So we created those roles for ourselves. And okay, well, who will Ken play, and who will Teresa play? And then we came up with the, the whole story. And uh, and and we've been doing it for twenty five years, or, or no more than that. I mean, eighty four is the first time we did Times Square and 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 then eventually uh, for the past twenty one years, without a break, we've done um, done it as a stage reading at Theater of the New City in the East Village. But this time, uh, starting 1991, uh, I did a rewrite on it and add the character of Helen, uh, this uh, uh, faded star. And, and that was a kind of a better part for Andy and, 
and he's really had a great success with it. So one thing I noticed when I was I was reading a lot of your plays in order to prepare for this interview, one thing I noticed is that you always get the names really great and what they would be in a real movie. So what do you think are some of the most like small elements, but ones that really make a satire successful? Well, I think with with, na with character names, for one thing, I I, uh, I don't like being too on the nose. I, I you know, my my, my for my genre parody plays. You know, since I'm I'm kind of a film historian, I, I really like it to be very accurate. So I wouldn't make it so exaggerated. That's that would be some a different style. You know, if it, like a, a name that it's a pun involved. Like you know, if it was a much broader style. Someone my character could could have been called I, you know, Irish. Uh, oh, tough bitch, or something. I don't know. You know, I mean, something with the. Her character in the name or something. You know, that's not what I do. No, I want. You know, um, I, I guess I was thinking like in the movie Ball of Fire. My character was a little bit like um, Barbara Stanwyck's character in the movie Ball of Fire, and her name in, in that movie is Sugar Puss O'Shea. So I guess I hadn't really thought of it before. But I guess Irish O'Flanagan is kind of like Sugar Puss O'Shea. Um, yeah. So I, I, I like the characters' names to be really like what they would be in an old movie. They're, I don't exaggerate it. And then same, you know, in my, in my non-genre plays, like The Tale of the Allergist Wife, you know, there, there, um, there was a contemporary uh, New York Jewish family. And, you know, I, you know, I don't want to, I could have made their name just really, uh, I don't know, Lipschitz or something. I don't know, just like a really exaggerated, um, Jewish name, but I wanted it to be very realistic, and so they're the Taubes, and I, and often I, and I, I had a friend in Chicago, uh, Jay Taub, and um, and his his father was a, a eminent um, eye surgeon, so I, I thought you know um, since I had a character of a successful allergist, uh, Doctor Taub, just has a you know had a strong ring to it, and it had the had truth to it. So yeah, so I, I didn't want to be a real exaggerated stuff. So his wife Marjorie Taub just seemed like the, and her maiden name was Tuckman. So they, you know, they're just not the obvious names that would just be silly. I don't, I don't go for silly names. Like just whether the if it's a movie piece, realistic that or 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 if it's naturalism. So some of your plays that you wrote around this time, including Red Scare on Sunset. They're not so much violent, but they are somewhat eerie. So how do you sort of do that while still managing to make it funny? Hmm. Well, I love melodrama and I love plot and narrative. And that's, to me, that's as important as it, it was a bigger interest as comedy is. And, and, and the, all these, yeah, uh, all, even Vampire Lesbians, which was you know, very, very flimsy, little entertainment but there, there's moments where it gets genuinely emotional and I, I like that as an actor you know I, you know I wrote these things always as vehicles for myself and I wanted to have to give myself a range of emotion to you know it's just fun for me exciting for me as an actor so even in Vampire Lesbians there was a big key moment where she reveals my character Madeline Astarte reveals that 
who she that she was this girl in ancient Sodom who had been defiled. And um, I was inspired by a monologue in the movie, um, the 1935 version of the Tale of Two Cities where Madame Defarge gets in the witness stand and does this big aria. And so it was kind of, kind of like that, but it was funny, but, but, it, but it was also genuinely intense and I could play both sides of that. And that's what I, I, I love. And so all of the, all of the pieces we did, even, even at Limbo Lounge, Theodora, as wildly burlesque as it was, um, there still was, there were key moments from the Sardou Bernhardt play that I, I wanted to do on stage where, where she hears her lovers, her lovers outside the door. And, and if he, if he, if he opens the door, he's going to be killed. And there's a famous picture of Sarah Bernhardt where she flings herself against the door and it's very dramatic. And I, I wanted to have that experience. So I do that. And, and um, I, I don't know. It's, it's so natural to me to go from the, Intensely, true, I say true melodrama, not you know spoof like oh you know, but really when I say melodrama in, in a positive way of uh, in, in intense drama underscored with music, uh, I, I I love doing that as much as getting a laugh. So all, all these all these plays, and then as they got more elaborate, you know, when we started performing in in, in real theaters and, and plays were like the, I guess, so, um, well, the lady in question was uh, commissioned by the WPA theater. And that was the first time that we started a play in a theater and not, um, you know, at Limbo Lounge. And so uh, I chose a genre, the anti-Nazi war melodrama of the early 40s, because I really wanted, I, I wanted to be both a, a an homage to those movies, but also have it succeed on its own terms as suspense play. And that's just tricky to do, but that's what I wanted. And I, um, so I thought it was successful in that, in that way. And then Red Scare was a very ambitious play because it was set in the, during the McCarthy era in, in um, Hollywood. And it, we were trying to, we're, we were trying to make a, an outrageous comedy as well as a, uh, it was also a statement about extremism, you know, in, and uh, American culture and um, so all the, all those things. So, you know, um, it, was, it was a complex play, kind of in your um, uh, sense of irony, if, if you could take the leap and find the comedy in this um, tragic situation. So when you did the play, You Should Be So Lucky, you performed out of drag. So mm -hmm. how was that sort of different? Um, hmm. Well, you know, we had been doing theater in limbo without a break from uh, 84 to 92, let's say. And um, I don't know, we, you know, we suffered some terrible tragedies. Uh, two of our actors died of AIDS and um, that was really painful and demoralizing and everything. And uh, and I don't know, I guess it was time to kind of move on and try different things. Um, although, you know, we, we kind of came back together at different, periodically, you know, I would continue to work with Julie and, and Andy and, and Ken and over the next decade, and, you know, but 
really having an ensemble that I was just writing for kind of ended with Red, basically with Red Scare. And um, I wanted to try different things. And I was, I was intrigued by the idea of maybe getting out of drag for the first time in all those years. And what kind of role would that be? And it was, and it was hard. And I, um, I, I struggled trying to figure out who this character that would, that I would enjoy playing. And the, I, I had, hadn't done, written a play that was rewritten so many times. We would do, um, we started doing readings at different theaters. It, it was, it was uh, a bit discouraging. I had, I had kind of thought by 94 that I'd had enough of a reputation that some of these nonprofit theaters would, you know, leap at the opportunity to present me and uh it was, you know it wasn't really so and um but we you know we would do readings at playwrights horizons and manhattan theater club you know and, and just um and i wasn't used to the idea too like at manhattan theater club when we did a reading there because i had a contact over there at that point um that it was a long process they would the play would be developed and i wasn't used to that you know, they told me, well, it could be two years in development before we do the play. Two years? Now, I was used to doing a play where just a right and we do it the next month. Um, and, he, and the WPA Theater, uh, where, you know, I had, it was, had ended. And that was a very easy situation with Kyle Rennick over there where I, I could just call him up and say, oh, you know, I have an idea for play. I haven't written it yet, but the idea is it's set in the McCarthy era and the blacklist. And that was enough for him. And I said, could, could you give me a spot in your season? And he said, fine, you know, when you want. I said, March would be good. So that, without that home, I, I was now vulnerable to these other theaters. And I just, you know, um, I, I, I later had realized I sort of had to conform to that, but in 1994, I wasn't prepared, but we did, uh, and it, so we did all these readings and then the fine, um, we got a, the opportunity to do a reading at Bay Street Theater in Sag Harbor of You Should Be So Lucky. Uh, and I, I, I had a terrible attitude. I was, I had been so burned by all these other readings at these other theaters. And I think now we're schlepping all the way to the Hamptons to do another reading that's gonna just, it's just an exercise in busy work. Well, you never know. So we did we did the reading there, which went quite well, and um, and it, it so happened that Casey Childs, who was the artistic director of of Primary Stages in New York, has a home in the Hamptons, and he came to our reading, and he said, "I love the play, and I'd like you to do it at Primary Stages in New, in New York." So I'm I'm glad I wasn't didn't have such a terrible attitude that I, <laughs> that I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, because you you just never you never know when opportunity might uh, present itself. And that started this relationship that continues to this day with primary stages. Um, and, and then, you know, uh, Terrence McNally was a friend of mine and, and he, uh, he we, uh, we stayed with him that weekend that we did that, that play in the Hamptons. He stayed at his house. Uh, and he, you know, he was a lovely, wonderful man. And, uh, his partner at the time, young Gary Bonasarte, uh, 
So after the reading was over, we went back to Terrence's house and Gary said to me, you know, Terrence has some uh, ideas for you if you, you know, but he's, he doesn't want to give them to you unless he, has, he thinks it would be presumptuous of him to give you notes. I said, are you kidding? I, I would lo love to get some feedback from him. And so Terrence was very helpful and, you know, extremely astute as you can imagine and, and really pinpointed a number of, of places in the play that needed, could, could be developed you know, uh, for further. And um, I, you know, I'm no fool. I, I took every, every, every suggestion he had and, and, and ran with it. So I was very grateful that he um, was so generous that way. And we did, so we did, so we, so we did the play at primary, uh, at primary stages. And we had a wonderful cast. Uh, Julie Halston was played her part and was it Matthew Arkin and um, Nell Campbell from Rocky Horror Show, who was a friend, friend of mine. We were looking for a Nell Campbell type and then Ken said, we might as well just get Nell Campbell. Uh, and then a um, uh, wonderful actor, uh, oh God, Stephen Perlman, Stephen Perlman, who I just adored. And uh, so, yeah, but I, I wasn't so happy with it. Somehow, the way the play developed, my character uh, became rather passive. Um, just to tell the story, my character started, started off as this rather um, passive, insecure, frightened person who then develops a spine. And uh, I didn't really enjoy playing it, honestly. And I was used to, I, I missed the theatricality and swagger of my, my, my female characters. And, and I really am a female-centric writer. And so the other, the female, the female characters that play that Nell, particularly that Nell and Julie played, were more fun. And you know they they uh, really were singled out by the critics in a way that I wasn't, and that just kind of stuck in my craw. You know, I was used to critics all you know <laughs> writing paragraphs about me, uh, and so that that sort of bugged me. And I I, uh, I was a little a little jealous of Julie. She she got oh just rave reviews and everywhere. Well, I was kind of kind of jealous. Yeah, I I, I didn't. Um, I've only rarely uh, stepped out of out of drag and each time I do, I, I, it's, it's, um, it's difficult for me to come up with a role that really gives me the freedom and expression that my drag roles uh, do. But I want to ask you about one more, which is your novel, Horrors of Lost Atlantis. Uh -huh. So what was it that made you decide to write that and how is it different than writing a play? Robert, I've just been very lucky that some you know opportunities have come to me. I had never thought of writing a novel at all, but I, I was um, being represented at the time by William Morris Agency, and I I believe that um, an agent of mine there who was in their literary department just ha had lunch with an editor at at Harper Collins, Tom Tom Miller, and they were just I guess chatting and. Um, I, Jim Stein, the agent, I guess, said, what do you think uh, about Charles Bush writing a novel? And Tom Miller said, well, that sounds great. And then, so Jim said to me, would you ever want to write a novel? So 
said, yeah, sure, yeah. <laughs> and so I, I, uh, I had to come up with just a couple pages, just a proposal, basically. And I, did, I, I had no idea, but I thought, well, you know, I, I was so, still so fascinated by theater and limbo and our story. I thought, well, I'll write something, a, 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 a novel about us. And I, I thought I would use all of our real names too, but make it all very kind of exaggerated fantasy. It didn't really make too much sense, but that was what I proposed. And they said, yes. And I, and I, it was, it was never really quite clear whether they thought I was writing a nonfiction book about limbo or a novel, but I, I got the impression they didn't really care as long as it was funny. And I, I began thinking of it in terms of, of this novel using their visual names. Then, then I, I got a little um, nervous that, you know, you uh, took your writing was sort of overtly sexual material about uh, my life. I thought, oh, I think I need a, a persona. So I created a character who was clearly Charles, but his name was uh, Julian. And then, and then the story just kind of took off and became its. It has roots in the theater and limbo story, but in almost every chapter or every incident, you could say it had its root in truth, and then just exaggerated and turned it into a whole imaginary caper plot. And uh, it was. It, it was. Um, I you know had really never written f fiction before, and I was you know this was before I was on the uh, just before. I started working on a computer. So I, I was uh, on the typewriter. And then uh, when I would have all these you know, 450 pages and to send it into you know, my editor, uh, it really needed to be on the computer. So Kathy Carr, who um, was you know, my old friend and had been our stage manager and, and wig designer of Theater in Limbo. She also had great office skills. So she retyped the 450 page manuscript four times in its entirety. And it was sort of odd since she was a character in the, in the book as well. She's Camille in the book. So yeah, it was, it was, it took a village. It was, it was a huge endeavor, particularly because I wasn't on, on um, the computer yet. But we, we did, and it was it was thrilling to have a, a novel out. Now, of course, I'm I've had to tell the entire story again. I've written a memoir, which is the actual story as far as I, as much as I can really remember, and uh, try, trying not to to exaggerate it. So I've I've done that. Now I'm, I'm sort of in the middle of shopping that around. But a chapter from it was just published in the New Yorker about a week ago, and that was incredible thrill for me. I, I still can't quite believe that I had a story in, in The New Yorker. It was it's very encouraging as far as getting the book published in its entirety. I'll be excited to read that memoir when it comes out. Okay. But uh, going back for a second to Horrors of Lost Atlantis, you, how did the people who were involved with it in real life feel about it? Hmm. Well, it, it's difficult. I, there are a couple things that I, I wish I hadn't written. If I could go back, you know, certain descriptions of the way people looked, I think was a bit insensitive. Uh, I, at the time, I think I did check with 
people somewhat on how they were portrayed. And I, and I took their suggestions. Somebody thought that I made it sound like they drank too much. And, you know, I toned that down. Um, uh, Kathy Carr, who's very important in my life, you know, Kathy, and she um, has done my wigs for my whole career. And, you know, and she's kind of like my, my sister. We're so close. Um, and she uh, she typed that manuscript four times, 450 page manuscript, because I wasn't on the computer in the early 90s when I wrote it. And, uh, and it was kind of hard for her, because she, she's the character of Camille in the book. And so she'd have to type out, Camille was still pretty, despite all the weight she'd piled on. <laughs> that was rather galling. <laughs> or I think there was another line about, how, about when Kathy stops stop smoking and uh and like a lot of people she became very irritable and uh during that difficult period and i think there was a line in the book that, that she had to retype four times uh camille was like a, a little hitler when she stopped smoking <laughs> but she, she's a good gal and she you know she typed it out so here we come to the end of the first part of my interview with Charles Bush. Listeners, thank you for tuning in, and remember to come back on Friday to hear about Charles's career from flipping my wig on to today. Thank you.